When the writer of Hebrews thinks about Jesus Christ, he sees in him that nature of him being man and him also being God. And he is reflecting on this and just who Jesus was. He puts it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And boy, do we have a lot of weaknesses. The writer here says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. Now you think of the high priest in Israel. The high priest was a person. Someone who lived life. I think of so many churches, and I know I am one of these pastors, but so many churches that have pastors that have to work outside of the church. And there's a good thing about that. Because I know what it's like to have to put in your hours. I know what it's like to have to run home and change your shower in order to not smell like raw chicken when I come here on Wednesday night because I just worked eight hours. I know what it's like. And it gives me a sense of being able to sympathize when someone's saying, I, I'm having to work a lot lately. Or when someone's saying, you know, it's just life, there's just so many things up in the air. I can sympathize with that. I know what that's like. I don't sit in an ivory tower all day. That's a good thing. But we have a high priest, even more important than me, someone who's much better than me, someone who has God's own nature, and yet he is also able to sympathize in every way. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be sad. He knows what it's like to have problems in relationships. He knows what it's like to go through the things that we go through. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize. Not one who is unable. Not one who doesn't understand what we're going through. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The difference between our high priest and us, the difference between Jesus Christ and everybody else is he's able to pull this off without sin. Everybody else, man, we, we don't. All others fail to uphold standard of holiness. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And we can't pull that off for 20 seconds. We can't pull it off. Not even for a fraction of a day. No one is able to. You think about the most pious person, the most devout Christian. You think of people that you can't even say their name without smiling because of how wonderful folks they are. And they're not able to do it. And yet Jesus Christ lives every moment of every day of his life without sin. Loving God completely. Can you imagine? That's living on a whole nother level. And we could just talk about that all morning long. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus Christ is the one who is tempted, but is without sin. Because that's what Luke is going to show us in this story. This is probably the exemplary moment in Jesus' life where the temptations are at their most severe, some of their most severe, and yet he is without sin. Stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 4. We're going to read the first 13 verses and talk about the temptation that Jesus faced. Luke 4, 1 through 13. This is God's word, you know. And if you let it, it will change your life. If you need proof of that, 
We'll just read the following verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will, give it, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, may your name be glorified. Show us through the account of this temptation in the desert, how we might glorify you when we are tempted. May we, as we face temptation, do just as your son did. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What happens in the desert is pivotal for the rest of the If we are going to know Jesus in his truest light, we have to understand that he is the one tempted in the desert. Look Look at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan. In English, we don't start sentences with and. That's just not proper grammar. In Luke's way of writing, though, you do. And it's a way of showing that what happens now is part of the story of what has already happened. So what has just happened? Well, if you look back at the end of chapter 3, Luke takes this interlude into the genealogy of Jesus. But just before that, in the story... Jesus is baptized. And the key thing happens right at the end of that passage. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Remember what they say? Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. He had just been baptized. God put down the Holy Spirit on him. It was almost like a dove flying down from heaven and resting on his shoulders. God demonstrating that this is his son in whom he's well pleased. The presence of the Holy Spirit on Christ. This wasn't an instance where before this he didn't have the Spirit and now the Holy Spirit has come upon him like some people might teach. No. He had the Holy Spirit long before this. This wasn't when Jesus becomes God. It's not like he's just an ordinary person and then suddenly when this happens, the Holy Spirit comes down and now suddenly he's God. That's heresy. Jesus was always God. From before the beginning of creation, Jesus was God. That's who he is. This, this was a demonstration. I want you to know that my spirit rests on him. So I'm going to show you that. He was, after all, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't a new thing for Christ. But in this instance, others see the Holy Spirit resting on him, dwelling with him. And now in Luke 4, we see the Holy Spirit leading him. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
straight out of the waters of the Jordan. He's, his clothes aren't even dry yet, and he's headed to the wilderness because the Holy Spirit is leading him. Luke continues the story in verse 2, for 40 days. So he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. There's your big summary. This is, this is what the story is about. And he ate nothing during those days. We don't have this recorded as a command from God, but I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure that it was revealed to Christ because he's being led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness in the first place. I'm pretty sure that the Spirit is also leading him not to eat. You'll see why I think that in just a second. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You ever not eaten for a month? I can't imagine the hunger pains he was feeling. I mean, I get hungry after just eight hours. 40 days, it's a long time without food. He must have had bad headaches. Must have been excruciating by this point. Not to mention, he probably felt like his stomach was about to turn inside out and start eating the rest of him. It would have been weak. Probably bent over as the, the pangs of hunger almost crippled him. You ever, you ever considered this? Just how hard it is for Christ at this moment? We don't know when, Luke, when Satan actually comes to Jesus to start, start the temptations. Some commentators believe, and I'm inclined to think this is true, that he is being tempted the whole time and that these are just a sample. These are just, I'm going to show you these three to give you an idea of what it was like. Maybe these were the people. Maybe he had been tempted throughout this time and these were the penultimate of the temptations, the, the, the very hardest ones. But here he is, weak, hungry, hurting, and Satan says to him, look hungry. You probably want some food, huh? And here comes the first temptation. The temptation to subvert God's plan. The devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, wait, 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 just a minute. What, if you are the Son of God? What is this if business? Didn't, didn't God actually say this was his son? Luke 3, 22, look at it again. What does God say? You are my beloved son. There's no doubt. Jesus is absolutely God's son, period. End of discussion. There's no doubting this. And Satan knows that too. Satan knows this is God's son. So what is he saying if you are the son of God? There's a couple of different ways you can put an if-then statement in, in Greek. One of them is the way he puts it here. And you assume that it's true. The if part is true. We're not going to debate it. We're not going to argue about it. We're just going to say, just for the sake of argument, we know this is true. That's how this one's constructed. This, if you are the son of God, some people might translate it since you are the son of God. Or, you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. What's so bad about this? Uh, by the way, um, to give you a similar thing, it would be like asking my kids if they want candy. Okay, I pretty much guarantee you the answer, right? The temptation is to demonstrate his authority over nature by making a stone bread. Now, can God do this? Absolutely. If God wants to turn a stone into bread, he can do it. He's turned stones into water. Jesus says at another point, or John the Baptist actually, back in chapter 3, he's telling them to repent and bear the fruits of repentance. And he says, don't say that you're Abraham's children. God can raise Abraham's children from these stones. 
This isn't out of the authority of God. This isn't out of the power of God. Since you're God's son, why are you suffering? Why are you going through all this? You're better than this. Just make it bread and eat. The temptation goes beyond the physical need, though. The temptation is for Christ to subvert God's plan. You see, God has a plan. And he has a plan to care for Christ. We'll find out a little bit later that God sends angels to minister to Jesus after this. I believe it's Matthew that gives us that detail. That, that after the, this was done, angels came and ministered to him, feeding him, caring for him. You see, God has a plan. We talked about Elijah. Uh, I did it with the boys today. And Elijah, right after he's on the top of Mount Carmel, he defeats 450 prophets of Baal, puts them to death, and then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, and he runs for his life. He forgets that the Almighty God that just burned up a sacrifice that was soaked with water, so much so that it filled up a moat around it, the God that can do that, the God that could feed him through the famine by providing food for him for a year by some ravens and who provided for him and a widow and her son when they didn't have enough flour and oil to last through a meal, not to mention another couple of years. The God who had provided for him all his life, who had cared for him, who had protected him in the midst of very bad circumstances, that this was the very God he couldn't trust because of a queen, and so he runs away. God had a plan to care for his son in the wilderness. And the temptation was, just subvert that plan. This has gone on long enough. Abraham and Sarah promised a son through whom all nations be blessed. But you know, they're getting old. And the temptation to subvert God's plan goes back even further in the garden. Adam and Eve. Eve looks at that fruit. She sees that it's good for food. It's pleasing to the eyes. It's desirable to bring knowledge. So she subvert God's plan. Christ refuses to do that. And, and the temptation is the same for us. It's to cheat on the process. You know, none of us None of us want to wait too long. We have instant oatmeal because it takes too long to boil water, apparently. And you still have to boil water. We live in a world that just doesn't want to wait. Wants it now. And we've grown accustomed to that. We get mad when our headache medicine doesn't kick in in two minutes. You mean i got to wait 30 minutes to get rid of this headache? We don't like to wait. And it's easy for us to want to subvert to take a shortcut to get to whatever we want a little bit faster. It's a very real temptation. We live in a world where just typing in a few words into a search bar is too much effort. So we hold down a button, talk to Siri, or we just call Alexa and she shows up, and then we get mad when, it's, when we have to wait on the answer or when they tell us something that's completely unrelated to what we're asking. We're so tempted to bypass the process, but sanctification is a process. The work that God is doing in us, He does through a process. He doesn't make it happen overnight. He grows us little by little, bit by bit, throughout life. And that process of sanctification, that process of becoming holy, that process of growing to maturity takes a long time. And it's really, really hard. We just want it to happen and be done with. 
And so it becomes too much of a burden. We, we, we just want the shortcut. Just give it to us fast. Cut to the chase. Oh, why do we struggle with sins of subverting God's plan by acting on our own terms? Oh, God, just wipe away the fleshly desires. Just get rid of them. Teach us the patient endurance, but don't give us the lessons. Isaiah talks about that patient endurance. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? This is a way of saying, now I know I've been over you, over this with you. Over and over and over again. You should know this by now. But he says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no mind, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall feel exhausted. But exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It takes waiting. It takes patience. Christ does not succumb temptation to subvert God's plan. Luke 4.4 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes the Bible. You know when I say every Sunday morning, it's the word of God, and if you let it, it will change your life? That's not just a habit. That's actually true. And one of the ways it changes your life is that it gives you the resources you need to resist the temptations. Jesus saw through the temptation, the temptation to subvert God's plan, and he answers it with God's very word. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy. That's the book you can't spell the name of, you know? It's in the Old Testament somewhere. It's a repeat of a lot of the law. In fact, the word Deuteronomy means second law. Um, God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. And in the midst of this, he reminds them of what God had done. This is Moses talking to the people of Israel, reminding them of what God had done. Listen to what he says. And he humbled you and let you hunger. It's interesting. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He puts them down removes them from their high horse of exaltation, puts them down, humbles them, lets them go hungry, and then provides with stuff that they've never seen before. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Do we need bread? Yeah, but we need God so much more. In fact, we need God so much more that I'd rather do without the bread than without his words. God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness and in the same way he's providing for Jesus in the wilderness. You see, Jesus is a representative of Israel here. He's playing the role of Israel, going through the wilderness. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, they were in the wilderness 40 years because they messed up. But he was led and is following the Spirit to the wilderness, reliving this journey of being out, out of the promised land, tempted, hungry, humbled, and God providing for him. And he knows that God's provision is enough. He had to put trust in the Father to care for him, just as the Israelites were supposed to. They did such a good job, but he passed with flying colors. The second temptation 
Jesus is tempted not only to subvert God's plan, but to switch God's authority. Look with me at verse 5. And the devil took him up. Matthew puts this one third, and the other one second. Luke puts this one second and, and the other one third, being on top of the temple. We don't really know which order is correct, but, but Luke is making a point here. Um, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I can't help but wonder why Satan even bothers with this temptation, as if the Son of God would bend his knee and worship to the devil. <laughs> Jesus would have seen right through this. I mean, after all, he's God's Son. He knows better than any God is. He is the Most High. He also knows one day he'll have authority over all the kingdoms of the world anyway. His day's coming. Not today. Today, Satan has it. His day's coming. Satan's under God. It's not the other way around, but he tries anyway. This if-then statement is not assuming the first part is true. This one makes no assumptions. It's just a simple, conditional statement of, if you do this, then I will do that. To use uh, language that we've heard within the last year, this is a quid pro quo. If you, then I. If you worship me, I will give you all this. The temptation is to switch the authority of God for the authority of Satan. It's to pronounce the unworthy one as though he is worthy. It demonstrates the omnipotency of Christ and the impotency of Satan. Satan has to request worship. And no God that has to ask for worship is worthy of it. He's like a little dog yapping at you for attention. Look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> they seem to say. All the things that vie for your attention, that seem to beg with you on bended knee and plead for your focus, they're not worthy of worship. The everlasting God, the creator and sustainer of all things, doesn't need to grovel for your praise. So quit acting like he works for you. Like your praise is a bone for a good little dog kind of a God. If anything, we should be groveling before him, begging him for forgiveness, pleading with him for favor and grace. The temptation here is to trade the authority of God for something worth much, much less. So Jesus answers, verse 8, Jesus answered him, it is written. Notice that. It is written. He goes back to the Bible, back to the scripture, back to Deuteronomy. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This time, he goes back a couple chapters. Deuteronomy 6.13. God says to Israel, I'm going to take you into a land, and you're going to have all kinds of good stuff. You're going to grow fields that you haven't planted. You're going to live in houses that you haven't built. You're going to experience the blessings from the work that others have done. Don't forget me. The command of God through Moses was not to pursue other gods, not to worship the gods that those people worship. That's why they're gone. That's why they've been destroyed. That's why you have their land is because they were worshiping false gods. No, you stay faithful to me. Don't forget what brought you here. You ever heard that phrase? I saw a, a thing one time, an interview with Mr. T. Okay. And he's got all the gold chains and all, all the kind stuff that he had on, all these clothes. And the interviewer looked down and said, can I ask you about your shoes? He wore the most rickety old shoes. <laughs> Everything else was all flashy. 
Everything else was all nice. Everything else was all high-dollar kind of stuff. But the shoes, and the shoes were just not, they didn't fit in at all. They had holes in them and were dirty. And he said, it's so I'd never forget where I came from. Never forget what brought you here. Keeping God's word and his works in our mind helps keep us faithful to him. Keeps us from wandering in our own spiritual wilderness of doubt, confusion, misplaced affections. It helps us make sure that we don't switch his authority for something that ain't worthy. The last temptation. And this one I think is probably the hardest for us. is to supersede God's reputation. After having resisted twice from God's word, Satan quotes his own scripture. Luke 4, 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the temple was already pretty high and it's on the highest place in Jerusalem. So you can imagine the view. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, this is again assumed true, since you are the Son of God, you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he quotes, For it is written, where have we heard that? Jesus has been using this on him, so now Satan's going to show him some scripture. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He goes to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The psalm written by David. This one's particularly sneaky. The temptation here is to put God's reputation on the line by substituting what he has said for what you wanted him to say. And this one's really hard for us because we want, we like to have a God who can fit in our box, who will say the things that we like to hear. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We'll use scripture. We'll use things that are true, but ignore the context. Ignore what they're actually talking about and make them mean whatever we want them to mean so that we can have the authority over the Word of God. We try, instead of understanding the Word and letting God teach us through the Word, we bring in our own meanings to the Word and say, I am standing over the Word of God. I'm going to make it say what I want it to say. And we, we won't admit that. Well, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle, right? There's so many preachers today who stand in pulpits and they look for scripture to go along with what they want to say and they call it preaching. Oh, I found a verse that kind of goes along with this. That's not preaching, by the way. Don't just point at the pulpit, though. You ever heard yourselves pray? There is so much unbiblical prayer and we all do it. We all say to God, I know you want the best for me. There are bookshelves filled with self-help books that try to say that God wants you to live a happy, healthy life, that he wants you to have money and that he wants you to have great success. I don't have shiny enough teeth to preach that kind of message, but sometimes we pray that way. God do this, God do this, God do that. And what we're really trying to do is stand over God and make him do what we want him to do. Make the scripture say what we want it to say. Make ourselves the one in charge. And to take God's reputation and put it on the back burner and put ourselves front and center and say, this is, this is how I'm going to live my life. 
Oh, but there's a good verse for when I need it to sound holy. We have things that we put on our walls. It's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do we? Do we serve the Lord? Or is that just something cute for the wall so it's not a blank space? I'm worried this is the hardest one for us because God means what he says. He's King Jesus, as Jim was going to sing, but didn't. And you pointed out exactly right, Jim. He's the one in charge. He's the one with the authority. And when we try to make the Scripture say what we want it to say, when we twist it to, to sound like we are the ones that are right, when we read into it the things that we like for it to say, and we don't let God teach us, change us, move us, we are telling God, step aside, I got this. And if you really want the hardest temptation for us people to resist, it's the temptation to be first, to be most important. To supersede God's reputation. Funny thing is, he, he, he left out a verse. Look at Psalm 91, 13. Very next verse. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That one's a little too uncomfortable for him to talk about. See, that reminds me of Genesis 3. The promise that I'm going to put you two at odds with each other talking to the serpent, she'll crush your head and you'll bite her heel. He didn't put that part in though. <laughs> when you're trying to twist scripture, well, you can make, you can twist scripture however you want. Psalm 14, 1b says, there is no God. Of course, the first part says, a fool says in his heart. So <laughs> very different meaning when you take it in context, isn't it? We try to twist scripture usually because we know we're wrong. Christ resists that temptation. So he responds with another quotation. And guess what book he goes to? I think I would have quoted Psalm 91.13. I would have have been like, have you read the rest of that passage? (laughs) He quotes from Deuteronomy. Imagine that, the law. People say Jesus uh, uh, came to abolish the law. That's ridiculous. He's fulfilling it. Verse 12, Jesus said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Israel Israel tested God in their wilderness journey. Deuteronomy 16 is where he goes. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Massah was this place where they tempted God, tested God, put God through the ringer by complaining. Israelites were really good at this. We're not good at it today. We don't, we don't complain, do we? <laughs> It's putting God to the test. It's making God jump through your own hoops like he has to prove himself. We have to have some kind of ego to think that God exists for our entertainment. The temptation to test God is the temptation to exalt me over him and all others. Pride at its ugliest. And if we're honest, it's a good description of what we look like. We're so vile without Christ that we think God exists for us. My whole world revolves around me. Thank God he deflated my ego at least enough to show me that it didn't. Some would argue it's still a little still a little puffed up, but we're getting there. We must resist the temptations of Satan. The temptation to subvert God's plan by taking shortcuts. The temptation to switch God's authority for our own. To supersede God's reputation and make ourselves the center of our attention. 
their tough temptations to resist. But Jesus did. And he did resist, not by sheer will, not by his own fortitude, but by the word of God. He knew God's word, and even more than that, he knew how to put it into place. That's our only hope for resisting temptation. Father, as we approach this time of invitation, we recognize that you have given us in your word, not just a manual for how to live life. It's not just a a group of pithy sayings that, that can fit us. God, you've given us in your word who you are so that we can know you individually, so that we can know you intimately, so that we can know you and love you more and more and more, ever growing, ever striving. Father, we recognize there are times in our life where we're tempted, tempted to do things that you don't want us to do, tempted to do good things that aren't great things, tempted to do things that subvert your plan, tempted to do things that switch your authority, tempted to do things that supersede your reputation. Father, help us not do those things. By your Holy Spirit and by the Word of God, hidden deep within our hearts, help us to not sin against you. Father, in this time you're working, and some of us, some of us know that we don't know you. We've been playing church, and the time for games is over. Father, I pray that if that's true of anybody here today, that they would submit to you. Lord, some of us know you, but we haven't been resisting temptation. And we need to apologize, but more than that, we need to repent. We need to turn away from those things and turn to you. Lord, I pray that we would do just that. Some of us need help knowing what the next step is. There's a decision or there's a situation that we just don't know what to do. And we don't want to be like Israel in the wilderness, turning against you and sinning. We want to be like your son in the wilderness, following your will every step of the way. Would you help us do that? Bring those who need to make a decision this morning to the front. Help them overcome whatever's blocking their way. You be glorified in this time as we sing. In Christ's name, amen.